To academics who are listening to this in particular, your work isn't going to make a difference if it is an article sat behind a paywall, if it's a book chapter and a book that costs a hundred. And that's not going to cut it. Like, that's it. That's realistic. And I guess my job as an academic is to work with those on the ground activists, community organisations, ensuring our research is accessible, but ensuring that there is change as well. Welcome to Surviving Society with Chantel Lewis and Tiso Regis. Executively produced by Georgia Fori Addo. If you enjoy the podcast and find it useful for your ever expanding sociological imagination, please support us via Patreon. If not, you can always support us by sharing, subscribing, rating, and reviewing. Are you interested in some further reading on social movements and left politics? You should be if you're listening to Survive in Society. Red Pepper is a quarterly magazine and website of politics and culture. It is a space for debate on the left and a home for open-minded socialists. Red Pepper is reader funded with a sliding scale subscription model, ensuring its content is available to all. Find a link to Red Pepper magazine in the episode notes. Welcome to another episode of Surviving Society. We are really excited today to be joined by Shireen Fernandez, is a ESRC postdoc fellow in sociology at the London School of Economics, researching the everyday impact of the war on terror. Shireen's expertise relate to securitisation, surveillance and their impact on racialised people. A little spoiler alert, you will hear Shireen later on in the year on a series that we have co-produced called Material Crimes, talking actually about Guantanamo Bay. So look out for that. But today we are talking about your sort of broader research on, yeah, the war on terror. Shireen, thank you so much for coming in the show. Great. No, it's always so nice to speak to all of you about this. Oh, thank you so much. So, Shireen, before we kind of get into it, um, T, I think you had a question about definitions, didn't you? Yeah, I was just thinking, so in this kind of polarised environment where everyone's quite extreme, where you see quite extreme views on TV, how do you measure extremism? So I don't think that you can measure extremism. I think that... um, Governments and nation states and those in power will always will always construct extremism as part of their securitization narratives, right? So as time goes on, who is defined as an extremist changes, right? In this current day and age, um, we see those who affiliate with a conservative religious ideology, let's say, be labeled as an extremist. In the UK, they sort of want to adopt a colorblind policy uh, in which they say that an extremist is somebody who doesn't adhere to British values. So that could be anyone and anything, basically. But we know what that means. It has racialized connotations of who does and doesn't abide to these values. Um, And it doesn't hold much weight. But we see globally how this term extremist is used to securitize marginalized communities, right? So those who speak out against state practices, those who confront power, let's say. Um, so it's a it's a heavy term that unfortunately cannot, I don't believe anyway, cannot be accurately measured. I would have thought one of the kind of values that they espouse governments, Western governments, that tends to be anyway, is um, equality for women, 
right? But what you're seeing in Western states is the growing, the growing up, the growth of misogyny, right? Mm. Especially online. Mm. So that's against British values, but they don't securitize that group of pe- that group of people. Whereas when they look at the, when they look at Afghanistan, that's one of the reasons they use against them. Say they're extremists because they don't value, they don't give women their freedom. Absolutely, there's like a hierarchy, right? Yeah. So one of the reasons why. Um, the US invaded Afghanistan during the war on terror, for example, was to liberate women, Mm -hmm. to free women from the Taliban, to free them from their burqas and all sorts. And that was used to justify why, um, you know, they needed to invade Afghanistan and so on. Um, And so we see, I think, a hierarchy between, like you use the example of, you know, gender equality and women to say, well, these people... Um, you know, in Afghanistan and Iraq and so on, they are backwards. Therefore, you know, we we are the ones who are going to promote gender equality. We are the ones who are um, able to liberate them from their shackles, let's say. But then also we're seeing a number of women getting involved in things like counter-extremism and securitization. So another scholar, Abdul Ghud, she says that um, these are securocrats, right? That's that gender equality, so-called gender equality, um, is being achieved because more women are entering the security apparatus, right? So therefore they are going to be um, fairer in how they deal with certain measures, right? So I think it's a really complicated um, complicated dimension when it comes to, to gender. It's used in a very political way to suit narratives, um, depending on where you are and who you are, I would say. Thanks so much for that, Shireen. And and I mean, just before we ask a little bit about how you got into research in this, um, what is the UK government's definition of extremism? So their definition is um, active or vocal opposition to fundamental British values. And if I remember correctly, those British values are um, tolerance. Is it rule of law? Rule of law. Um, mutual respect and liberty and democracy. Are you mad? (laughs) 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 Which British Empire said this? This idea rolling. Like what was quite It's everyday gaslighting, isn't it? I went into a school and they they had the they had the words this was a primary school and they had a collage saying um, British values and they had the rule of law. And I'm thinking what primary school kid understands the concept of the rule of law? We know the we know the sitting prime minister doesn't understand the rule exactly. of law. Whoop, whoop, whoop. <laughs> but this is the thing; it's not for them, mm-hmm. right? So it's not they they aren't speaking. These values aren't constructed for those elites, right? Yeah, they're constructed for the the so so called like everyday citizen, right? But even more so, it's constructed to racialize minorities who don't adhere to these values, right? That the understanding is that, you know, the Trojan horse affair happened in UK schools and uh, young Muslims were traveling to join ISIS because they weren't British enough. So if you instill these values, then they're not gonna do so. This is quite interesting. And I think it links into what with Nottingham Carnival, right? So Mm. you see, this is a big, a big kind of poster boy for integration. Yeah, but Notting Hill Carnival is so interesting because mm. post the carnival, there were talk. There was talk on Twitter anyway, saying that I don't know the Met Police Federation so it's are the reviewing work. it to see if it should go ahead because there was a stabbing, right, and because yeah. there was violence. Mm. But that doesn't apply to other festivals, right? 
that doesn't apply to, and people were making that as the, that link that doesn't happen in Glastonbury and Reading and so why is it always that Notting Hill Carnival which has roots in like anti-racist activism <laughs> Why is it that this is a this is a space which needs po- the, right. the police in? Absolutely, yeah. yeah. And it's just so interesting in how, obviously, yeah, someone um, dying is not. I'm not. I'm not trying to compare it or anything like uh, to anything else. But I'm, what I'm saying, what I want to say here is that it's really interesting how violence and disorder is constructed in relation to the British government. Like mm. I was walking through Waterloo on my way here. And um, Sky News screen as I was, as walking walking out, saying that several cases of sexual misconduct being reported like constantly yeah. within Parliament, and it's like, how is that just seen as kind of a, a piece of news that yeah. just passes me by? Whereas like when we talk about how violence is constructed or sexual harassment or assault is constructed in the context of carnival, mm. it's like, oh, there needs to be a whole review. Like I want to have a review into the British government. Mm. Like I want a review into whether it is fit for purpose. It isn't. Totally. Um, do you know what I mean? So I think, yeah, it's really interesting. As you say, like it's not for that. The British values are not for the elite. Absolutely not. Like you said, it's not constructive for them and these values but how do you measure this but when you look at prevent it goes into the area of like pre-crime mm. like the area of like controlling people's thoughts mm. I can think extremist things but it doesn't make me extremist I don't know how they attempt to police this or mm. enact this because it's what what goes on in people's heads right through racism mainly yeah, yeah. um uh, as an add-on to T's question Shireen it'd be really good for the listeners to sort of introduce how you got into doing this yeah. research absolutely it was 2013 and I was I started training as a to become a teacher. So I was working in a prim- and I was working in a primary school um you know in reception um really enjoyed my job but but there was loads of reports coming out between the years of 2013 to 2015 of Muslims infiltrating the education sector. Um, and that was the Trojan horse affair. So bear in mind, I was, what, 23, 24 at this time, no idea what's happening, you know, still trying to grasp my own profession. But then you're getting these reports that, you know, Muslims up north are um, infiltrating educational spaces and curriculums, trying to Islamify this, that, whatever. Um, And it made me feel very scared because you're thinking to yourself who is going to point the finger at me and say that I am infiltrating a young child, right? I am infiltrating their thoughts. And thinking about children, they're very malleable. They they want to, they see you, they want to copy your behavior. If I'm wearing a hijab, they want to do the same too. They want to, mm. that, that's how it is. But how do I know that's not going to be misconstrued as something sinister, right? So then come the reports that three girls from Bethnal Green join ISIS. This is a huge issue, right? Because Prior to this, the, the figure of the terrorist and the extremist is a, a Muslim man or male that needs to be policed. But now the tables have turned and it's three girls. So what's happening? Three you know, Muslim girls have travelled to join this like horrific organisation. Why are they not adhering to Britain? So all of this is happening in the space of two years, but I'm just starting my teaching practice and I'm thinking, what the hell is going on, right? Am I going to be protected? Probably not. Do I have to watch what I say in the classroom? Yes. And so then came the introduction of Prevent. And I was lucky enough to leave the teaching profession then to take up a PhD, which ironically looked at how Prevent was going to be implemented in schools. And so that's how I got into the idea of, you know, what's happening in schools through Prevent. 
but I would say that I was always interested in, you know, the broader politics of the war on terror simply because, you know, I grew up living in it. Um, and now we were seeing it being, you know, it was, what, 10 years, I guess? 10, 15 years on, and we're still seeing the continuous demonization rolling out on our everyday spaces. So that's, I guess, how I got into the PhD. But I don't separate the personal from the political or the academic. You know, it all sort of filters them. Like, it's so sad that, like, as a primary school teacher, you felt, because of what was happening in the media, especially, and obviously in UK foreign policy as well, that you felt scared and unsafe. Like, that might, yeah, it's just so disheartening and just really, really sad and shows the realities or the, yeah, psychological implications of policy and how racialized and racist it is. So, yeah, I'm so sorry that happened to you. I wondered, like, if you could speak to how your research is received or how you feel as a researcher outside of primary education now and in the academic space like do you feel safer in that sense or is it different so something which um i've been thinking about a lot is freedom of speech right and what you can and can't say and i do think there is a degree as a I guess you have to be careful as an early career researcher no matter where you are but there is a degree of being able to research what is important to you but being able to even like be on this platform right with you guys to speak about you know what's really important however I think with, there is a degree of autonomy even though prevent still exists in the universities there is a d degree of autonomy in how you go about dealing with a policy like this more so than in schools in schools I, I felt that you didn't really have these conversations um, that you had to implement prevent you had to attend training because it was mandatory it was a safeguarding issue and that's how it's been marketed it's a safeguarding issue to deal with extremism and if you're seen as going against that you are considered to be an extremist yourself right I haven't yet encountered that in universities but of course there's always that doubt in your mind about um, how what you're teaching is going to be misunderstood or, you know, I, I, I teach a, a course on 9-11, for example, and one of the requests that I put in was that I didn't want this lecture to be recorded because I don't know what's going to happen, right? You don't know where this data is going. And if you want to have a safe space for students to speak up in, it needs to be a free space, right? So I don't know. Maybe ask me in a few years. If and what did they say when you asked for the... And they said, absolutely, like, it's fine. And this was peak COVID as well, when yeah. lockdowns were happening. But I think we have to recognise that the, there are issues that we need to discuss, that students need to talk about, um, which, you know, cannot really... We, we don't know what's going to happen if they are recorded, right? Mm. And I think that's what's essential, is that right now we're living in a time where, you know... We want to be able to talk about this, but unfortunately prevent one of the impacts of it is that it stifles this debate. It stifles these conversations. Um, and it's something that students want to talk about. But I think what it does inadvertently is continue that that, that, that narrative to be constructed of the UK. Mm. The narrative that, so for example, the same narrative that surrounds statues, they want to present a certain view of history mm. and a certain view of events. But what we want to do is critique it properly, saying that this will happen, but this prevent you from doing that. Mm. So in it, it's quite interesting. In a primary school, when you talk about freedom of speech, these kids, they're not talking about it in a kind of analytical way. They'll just say stuff. Mm. But you're trying to police these, ki these little kids' thoughts or their actions. Yeah. 
and that's to me that sounds it sounds the opposite of what British values are. Yeah, because you're trying to please little kids from just being kids. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, a British value shouldn't exist at yeah. all, anyway, right? Like we shouldn't even. It has such huge racial connotations that it doesn't even make sense, right? You're policing a certain group of people. Whether, for example, also thinking about the class dimension, mm. does this apply to private schools as well? This is another thing we have no idea. Does it only apply to state schools um, with, you know, huge Muslim populations, let's say? Of course, it's a national policy. It, it, you know, it, you have to implement it everywhere. But the idea is that some schools will have to focus on it much more because of, obviously, the regulation body who is going to check whether you are adhering to this and that and whatever. Um, so, yes, absolutely, you're supposed to be promoting critical thinking. And one of the ironies is that Prevent says that it's about creating a safe space. I don't know how that can happen mm. if you're doing so. And I think the difference between academia, you know, and primary schools and secondary schools is that you are following a very strict curriculum where you cannot deviate mm. so much. So um, whereas in academia, you are the one who was creating the content and so on. I know from this statistic, I think it's 65% will look at will prevent cases were, were it, for Islam. Mm. From, but what about other forms of extremism? Like do yeah. they, is that, does it even come on the radar? Yeah, so there's been a huge talk about that um, prevent focuses on the far right and actually um, white supremacy and those who subscribe to a far right ideology are the ones who are being flagged up more. So prevent is the start. You get referred on to prevent, but then if those in authority usually is the police, if they feel like you are an extremist or there is um, certain flags, they will refer you onto the de-radicalization channel. That's the name. And what the officials are saying is that actually we're seeing more children, more young people being referred over far right concerns than they are you know, Islamist ideologies. Now, the issue with this is that with um, those who are, you know, referred on to prevent, you know, Muslims and so on, there is a stigmatization of a whole community, right? This doesn't happen with those who are referred for far-right concerns. You don't see a stigmatization of, you know, entire white populations. That just doesn't happen. And second of all, there's a really good article by Nadia Ali and she talks about how this idea about, you know, far-right referrals through Prevent and so forth, how can that happen when we are living with a right-wing mm. Tory government right now, right? And she explores these extensions between the two, right? That w what is acceptable and what isn't, you know? How are we upholding white supremacy or how are we claiming that we are not upholding white supremacy when we have things like British values coming mm -hmm. into existence, right? So there's a lot. There's a lot of ironies that even though prevent officials will say it's about all forms of extremism, all forms of terrorism, far right is being, you know, uh, reported and so forth. That's not the case. Prevent wasn't wasn't built for them. Far right white supremacy has been around for a long time, and nothing was done to challenge that mm -hmm. at all. I think it'd be really good for the listeners to sort of roll back to the Shireen Begum case. Mm. And I wondered if you could um, take us through that, uh, Shireen, and then we could talk a little bit about what's happened more recently in the news as well. Yeah. So um, Shamima Begum and her two friends, Amira and um, Khadija, this was in, I think, the tail end of 2014. 
They were students at Bethnal Green Academy and they travelled from their homes in East London to, um, I believe it was Turkey um, and Syria to join ISIS. And at that time, there was a lot of, you know, press coverage and political coverage about young Muslims traveling to join ISIS and what that meant politically. Um, so on the back of Shamima traveling, what happened is that Prevent became statutory. So all schools, all GPs, all universities had to now report individuals that they were concerned about uh, in relation to extremism and radicalization. There was an idea that schools weren't doing enough to target this. And so... Um, you know, Prevent was rolled forward. Um, now, following on from that, a few years ago, you had, um, you know, Shamima, I think her two friends had been killed. She had given birth to children in various camps. They had died. And then um, she was actually stripped of her citizenship, her British citizenship, um, by the Home Secretary at the time. And her baby also died. So... You know, it was a pretty unfortunate situation, which really, I think... Um, was it Sajid Javid? Sajid Javid, mm-hmm. yes. Yeah. Um, so I think that really made a lot of, um, you know, Muslims, those who have dual heritage, those who are just, you know, racialized people who don't even have dual nationality, really question their place in the UK. That if you could be made stateless, um, you know... Uh, that that's that's a huge that's a huge issue right um and then more recently the revelations <clears throat> that um she was trafficked into um syria by somebody who was also affiliated to the canadian spy network or whatever it is so these are huge revelations it right so just yeah just to make it clear <laughs> to the listeners so that the 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 British state basically made and constructed Shamima to be basically an enemy mm. of Britain and Britain's values and made her stateless. We have since found out that a spy from Canada, Five Eyes, from Canada, trafficked her. A child. She was fifteen at the time, wasn't mm. she? A child to fight in Syria or to be a bride in Syria she's been made stateless she's a she's a victim seven years ago we found seven out. years ago so, two, so, they, so, it, so we knew in 2015 so, so the British government knew in 2015 so we knew in 2015 and so all the we didn't prop- know they knew so, no, so they knew and all the propaganda put out to construe her as the enemy of the state regardless of what's happened in the background so yes um, Shamima was seen as a victim you know, she was seen as well. Was she a victim? No, she wasn't know. seen as a victim. She was seen as someone. Well, this is my opinion. Yeah, she was a child, yes. but she was positioned as an adult who Muslim decision, woman yeah. who made a quote-unquote rational decision yeah. to quote-unquote fight for ISIS. Yes. when actually she was a child that was groomed, taken by some fucking dick. Mm. Sorry, that it is so infuriating mm. by some s- state agent from a Western country and trafficked. Yes, but this isn't new. And I say this on two fronts, right? So first of all, so the allegations, and I didn't know this, the allegations about Shamima being trafficked by someone who worked for a spy agency allegedly was broken by Turkish media authorities. 
back in 2015, 2016. Britain's media weren't interested in that. Because Turkey was seen as uh, as a nation which wasn't doing enough to counter terrorism, to counter those, uh, you know, so there was a lot of scepticism <laughs> around, you know, Turkey as a nation state. But also I say this isn't new because... Um, you know, there's been various issues within the war on terror, within, you know, COINTELPRO that took place in the US of of undercover, um, you know, police officers, those who, mass, you know, work for state agencies who are basically entrapping young people or they are entrapping or trying to recruit um, individuals to be to either work for security services um, or to as part of their sort of like foiling terrorist attacks. Um, so we know that this is happening. We know that there's a collusion between, you know, the so-called the the state security agencies, um, and uh, just regular people. But you know what's so shocking, I guess, is the extent of how this one case of Shamima Begum has led to, you know, the enactment of the prevent duty across all spheres of life, and then the um, stripping of her citizenship you know, huge consequences for something which was allegedly orchestrated, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and it does make us think twice about who can you trust in this industry? I feel sick. Mm. I actually feel sick. Is the war on terror still going or yeah. has it ended? I don't know. Do we even refer to it as such anymore? So there's definitely, um, I guess, uh, two camps. Some who say that it has ended, that you know, Biden's withdrawal of troops in Afghanistan has signaled the end of the war on terror, um, that money isn't being directed to the military and so on. But then there are others who say that, well, the war on terror is still going on. And they say that because of, you know, Guantanamo Bay is still open. You've got detainees still there who were not even being prosecuted or charged as part of the war on terror. You've got you know, counter-extremism programs, counter-terrorism programs still operating in everyday life. Um, And I guess that depends on your definition of what war is. You know, is war contained to certain front lines? So Iraq and Afghanistan, um, you know, and it expanded into Yemen, uh, Somalia and so forth through drone strikes. Or do we declare the end because Biden has suggested or has said that he's withdrawing troops? Did the killing of Osama bin Laden signal the end of mm-hmm. the war on terror? So it's a really tricky question. I'm probably from the camp which says that um, it probably hasn't ended, no, that we're still seeing the repercussions. The war on terror, as it's been used since uh, 9-11, has, by, by certain countries, in a way, like to kind of police groups or outgroups, yeah. right? So the, you can label someone an extremist mm. and start using either prevent or other techniques used in other countries to police that group. Yeah, so this isn't just a global North thing, it's not just a West thing, but Mm -hmm. we're seeing it being rolled out in China, (laughs) in India. Um, You know, India right now um, claiming that, you know, Muslim groups especially are seen as extremists or terrorists or going against the nation state, for example. Um, What's happening in Israel and Palestine, right? Mm -hmm. That Israeli officials can call those who are Palestinian um, you know, part of terrorist groups, terrorist organizations, which requires them to be securitized. So in that sense, we're seeing the hardening of such approaches um, as a result of the war on terror, as a result of 9-11. But of course, we can we can take this back way back, right? Uh, that these aren't new practices, mm-hmm. um, but we're just reinventing the wheel. 
<laughs> I, honestly, I'm sat and I'm just like got my head back on the chair because I just, I can't get over the levels of fuckery, mm. particularly obviously conditioned, condoned, sponsored by the British state. Then it never fails to shock me and how they can go on TV and be in parliament and stand up there claiming purity. Mm. And it just, it's all, it's all a lie. It's all a lie. I, I don't think they ever, I don't think they ever claim purity. Yet. What I think they're so... Righteousness, they claim yeah, righteousness. And they're so blasé about it, right? Yeah. And it's, just, it's, it's a matter of fact for them. But I think what, I think this kind of goes back to our, one of our spotlight episodes in Beirut. Why do we as ethnic minorities keep seeking hope or reconciliation with the state as it's going to help us move, help us move forward? Mm. It, the state's proved to us that it's never going to help us, ever. And so where do we look, where do, to go forward, we need to look for more solidarities between us rather than referring back to the state because it's never going to help us. It hasn't helped us really. Yeah, I mean, we're in really dire situations right now. And I, and I say this because I'm thinking about you know, the news right now and about families saying they can't afford, they're not going to be able to afford to put their heating on. Yeah. And does that mean that they have to choose between feeding their children, feeding themselves or switching the heating on or whatever? And yet we're having these conversations, you know, the state is having these conversations, Rishi Sunak saying, mm-hmm. you know, he's going to widen the scope of who's going to be an extremist. People cannot eat. Mm. People cannot afford to heat their homes. And you are talking about ramping up the definition of an extremist. And it makes me think about manufactured crises, right? And we see this a lot with immigration, Mm -hmm. right? That it's been inflated as this huge issue that, you know, migrants, um, you know, refugees are traveling our seas and they're gonna take our jobs and our homes and they don't have the right documents. And, you know, this is a crisis, so-called crisis, that has been inflated so much that they need policies, they need laws, they need to harden their borders and so forth. Same with extremism too, right? Um, that the well, what they're arguing essentially is that whatever was in provision, um, you know, the welfare state, the the criminal justice system isn't fit for purpose anymore. That we need prevent, we need these sort of things. But we're literally living in a crisis, a politically um, motivated crisis, which is that people literally cannot afford certain things, and yet we are talking about issues that, for me anyway, seem to be inflated. And just on that inflation, I think it's really important to say that that inflation is purposeful. Mm. And like here we can draw to Stuart Hall, Marxist, like um, policing the crisis, like how they keep control, how they keep control of ideas, how they keep control of the state, how they keep control of the status quo Mm. is for a combination of ideology and manufactured enemies within. Yeah. But that's how you're looking to create consent, right? Yeah. So you're looking to get by coercion. So you provide all these threats. And no, you don't have to provide coercion. That's the thing with hegemony and, cons- mm. and consent is that you don't have to coerce people. Mm. You you use ideology, mm. you use the state and you use a quote unquote mugger mm. to yeah. say that those are the things that we should be focused on. So consent is created by a multitude of things, but they don't have to force mm. us. But consent is nonsense, right? Yeah. Like when it comes, especially when it comes to something like prevent... There is no such thing as consent. Right? Yeah. Because this is a statutory duty. Teachers have to abide by it. You cannot deviate against that. You cannot go into, roll into work and say, I'm not going to implement prevent today. 
You cannot do that. There is just no sign a thing. Well, it's part of your safe. <laughs> I remember actually when I was training to become a teacher, I had to sign a declaration to say that I was going to abide by fundamental British values. This it, was in really? twenty. Yeah, this was in twenty fourteen. That I was going to that abide by it. Blah 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 blah. So it's a thing. It's a, it's it is a huge thing, and I just think consent. Again, shout out Rizwan Sabir. He's written a really good paper on consent and coercion within counter-extremism to say that those boundaries are so blurry. I'm just thinking about um, some some other kind of uh, movements and activist networks that have been pushing against this and thinking about, in particular, thinking about Sisters Uncut and their campaign to withdraw consent from the police mm. and like how we should be the, using the language of we didn't agree to this. So we are removing your consent to police us in this way, thinking mm. about sort of abolition here. But the reality is of something like Prevent, because it is such a, um, the politics around it is so, are so fluid. And what I mean by that is it's very easy for the state and the everyday person to construct and use a language of Islamophobia, for example, as normal and mm. rational. So it makes it really hard to create any kind of collective resistance to something like prevent because it, Islamophobia and the policing of certain racialized people is so embedded in everyday life. And I guess this kind of draws to what your research mm. is looking at now. So to withdraw consent it seems like an impossible task because mm. of how easy it is for people to latch on to. Well, if they if they didn't, sorry, use use the word they, but I'm sort of doing a a, a made up conversation here. But like, if they if they if they think that there's something wrong with Britain, like they can leave, or if they if they don't want to abide by va- what our values, the right values, you know what I mean? Like, it becomes very kind of colloquial, but also normative and structured within all life all it takes is one terrorist event not even in this country yeah exactly and it reinforces kind of confirmation bias right mm. so they see it and they say oh there you go that proves what we've just been saying it doesn't matter how much fuckery yeah. britain are doing with saudi arabia it doesn't matter how much fuckery we're fucking mm. sorry sweat. Yeah. I'm, I'm just like i'm so frustrated about the shamima bagan case as well like it doesn't matter how juxtaposing contradictory it is Given what I've just seen in the, in the recent leadership hustings with the talk about <clears throat> the kind of inflation of what's going to be included in Prevent now, mm. lefty teachers, what does that even mean? Mm. Is that in the thing? That's what they were saying last right, night. We're finished. About lefty teachers. We so are finished. We are I, finished. I, I and I don't understand. What's where... a lefty teacher? And yep. what made what, what was quite shocking was the person, <laughs> the person that was um, answering the question was a young person about 17. She said, why are we teaching our, why, why are our kids, she's 17, she hasn't got any kids, teaching, or why are kids being taught by lefty teachers? And I'm like, raw, like, this is where we're at But bear in mind, this leadership campaign is for a select group of people. Mm-hmm. It's not mm-hmm. for us. We don't get to vote. Yep. We have no say. Mm-hmm. I mean, I say we, I'm assuming we don't. <laughs> <laughs> there are no Tories but we, in this we room. Literally, we literally do not have a say, right? Mm-hmm. And it's all part of this all like wokeness, culture wars yeah. in the classroom, what's taking place, lefty ideologies or whatever. But the that's just not it's not the reality. Um and don't think Rishi Sunak or any of them have ever been in a classroom to be talking about this stuff. Mm-hmm. Let's talk about a bit of hope, Shireen. Yeah, let's where can we find some <laughs> where can we find some hope with regards to prevent? So when I think about hope and prevent, I really root it in abolition 
that it's not enough to say, well, we can tweak it, we can review it, we can we can um, improve the training because that's not the case. We need to be rooting and we need to be moving towards abolition. And there are so many organisations that are trying to do that, right? That they are, you know, as you say, not consenting to the review that's going to take place. Mm. Um, you know, using social media, I guess, in ways to highlight just how toxic this policy is, but just how toxic strategies that the government are putting in place, such as the the independent review of Prevent, the guy leading it, very cosy with the Tory government. So what does that tell us about impartiality and so forth, right? So I do think that there is hope. But what I fear is what comes next with this current government, right? If you remove Prevent, there is going to be something even worse. And that's not to say that Prevent should stay. But that's to say that when we're thinking about abolition, we need to think about it across all fronts. That um, doesn't just stop at prevent. But we need to think about the wider the wider goal. Uh, and there's an assault on our civil liberties happening, whether it is prevent, whether it is nationality and borders bill, whether it is criminalization of activism as well. Um, so I don't know. I'm hopeful. Optimistic. You are hopeful still. I hope so. Oh. Yes. <laughs> I say I'm hopeful because there are so many great people mm. doing such important work on mm. this. And these revelations, for example, the Shamima Begum stuff, that's not going to stop. That's just going to keep coming and coming and coming. Um, and it's very easy to feel, you know, disheartened and, um, you know, just feel like nothing is going to get better. But I do feel that if we're collaborating with grassroots organizations with those who are doing the work we may see some change um but for me i guess my politics is rooted in abolishing prevent starting in schools it's even working in nurseries like that's a joke i think the youngest person i referred to was like three or three four, years old yeah. and the issue is <laughs> oh unraveling my oh my god three oh my god. years old <laughs> I remember visiting nurseries <laughs> for my daughter and coming across a nursery that had a Prevent poster and British Values poster. And I know it's all about the optics. I don't even think these nurseries believe in it, but I yeah. know it's about the optics. It's so depressing. It's mad. It is. It's crazy. It's it is crazy. Plague Island. But we're, yeah. we're seeing revelations come out. And every other day, we are seeing just how terrible this policy is. So I am hopeful. And I guess we have to be hopeful. But I guess to academics who are listening to this in particular, your work isn't going to make a difference if it is an article sat behind a paywall. If it's a book chapter and a book that costs a hundred, that's not going to cut it. Like that's it. That's realistic. And I guess my job as an academic is to work with those on the ground, activists, community organizations, ensuring our research is accessible, but ensuring that there is change as well. And we think a lot about impact as academics, right? We have to, that's part of the regulations, right? And we need to start deconstructing what impact means, right? Because is it working with the Home Office? No. Mm. Is it working with a government institution? How do you do that? How do you do that when your politics doesn't align to that? But also if you're going to get criminalised by because of what you're researching, let's say. 
So I do think a lot about our role in, you know, the money that we're given, the platforms that we're given, diversify your research and ensure that it's reaching um, those in the community that need it the most, I think. That's amazing, Shireen. You heard it here first. Mic drop for that. I like mic that. drop. That's a big a surviving, big surviving site. You might drop. Yeah. Thank you so much, oh, Shireen. Thank you, Shireen. Thank you so much for joining us. Patreons, another episode for you over on the Patreon um, website now. Shireen, thank you so much. Thank you. Listeners, thank you so much. Listeners, we'll see you again next week. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Surviving Society with Chantal and Tiso. You can now continue the conversation with us on Twitter and Instagram. If you enjoy the podcast and find it useful for your ever-expanding sociological imagination, please support us via Patreon. If not, you can always support us by sharing, subscribing, rating and reviewing. 